Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for uh, what we've learnt about you, that uh, you are indeed all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. We thank you that you're with us now. And we pray that as we uh, look at your word that you've uh, made available to us, that we would uh, develop a a deeper understanding of uh, your plan and your purpose and a a deeper understanding of reality uh, and where we fit into your reality. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine that there's no heaven. Uh, It's easy if you try. Uh, No hell below us, above us only sky. Can you imagine all of the people living for today? Well, John Lennon in his song asks us to use our imagination. Uh, He asks us to imagine a world where all that exists is this physical life. There is no heaven, there is no God. Uh, There is no place of eternal rest. There's no hell either because there's no judgment. Uh, But there is all of the people living for, how's it go? Today. Imagine. Imagine that. Now imagine a church. Imagine a gathering of Christians in a land where people are punished for being Christians. Imagine that we were a group of Christians uh, meeting in an illegal church in Pyongyang in northern North Korea. 
Imagine our prayer times. We don't just pray for those amongst us who are sick. We pray for those amongst us who got a knock on the door last week and haven't been seen since. Or perhaps one of the very early churches, the uh, churches in the Roman Empire, uh, the churches to whom John wrote his letter. Imagine that the government specifically invented ways of punishing people, of hurting people, just so as to punish Christians. Uh, Imagine the historians of the day writing something like this, and I'll quote, Christians were covered in the skins of beasts so that they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when day had expired. Can you imagine that? Now imagine the Apostle John writing to Christians who are in that situation and saying to them, my word to you is this, there is no heaven, there is no hell, so why not just live, live for the day? Can you imagine that? That's not so easy if you try, is it? It's not so easy. Uh, We know that uh, John wrote to these seven churches in Uh, Roman Asia Minor and uh, they were churches who were that were that were dealing with issues some of them as we saw a couple of weeks ago were suffering from persecution remember Caesar worship you had to bow down and worship Caesar as God otherwise you were considered a traitor others were uh, fending off uh, false teaching the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the teaching of that woman known as Jezebel and uh, Balaam and so on. They were fending off false teaching in their churches. There were others that were being slack. (laughs) They weren't fending off false teaching. They were absorbing false teaching and that they were absorbing the morality or rather lack of morality of the world around them. And so that in one way or another, each of these seven churches were under threat. And so how would John encourage them? What would he say to them? Remember Job uh, in the Old Testament. Job lost everything, didn't he? He lost his possessions, uh, he lost his health, he lost his family, his kids, he lost them and he didn't know why He tried to be a righteous man. He didn't know why he was suffering so much. And his friends, they knew even less why than uh, than Job did. And the reason that they didn't understand what was going on uh, in Job's life was because they didn't understand what was going on in the heavenlies, did they? They didn't have that glimpse into the heavenly reality. And so... But in Revelation chapter 4 and uh, onwards, uh, John says to these struggling Christians in Asia Minor, he says to them, come with me on a journey, come with me, because there is a heaven and I've seen a vision of heaven and let me show you what's going on there because it'll help you to understand the situation that you're dealing with here and now in your daily life as a Christian. Now, 
um, you and I are now going to, to, uh, to join John on that journey. We're going to start our journey into John's vision of heaven and into what really is one of the most, if not the most, curious and inspiring parts of the Bible. Uh, from Revelation chapter 4 right through to Revelation chapter 22. Now I say that it's a curious part of the Bible because of the, um, the, the imagery in uh, John's vision has been the source of a great deal of speculation and uh, some of it rather fanciful speculation. And a lot of it is unnecessary. And this is the kind of thing that uh, causes some Christians to get very, very much uh, engrossed in Revelation, causes other Christians to shy away from it. Frankly, I'm looking forward to Lachlan's uh, pictures of the sermons over the next few... Lachlan does a picture of a sermon every week and shows it to me at the end of the service. I'm looking forward to the pictures that Lachlan's going to do from Revelation chapter 24 to chapter 22. So everyone's going to be looking at, to see what Lachlan comes up with. But uh, one of the reasons why it's, there's a lot of fanciful speculation about uh, this, uh, the, the, the majority of the book of Revelation is because of uh, the type of literature that it is. It's important when we're reading literature to understand what style of literature we're reading. Um, for example, um, if I start reading a novel but I treat it as if it's a newspaper then what sort of a view of the world am I going to come up with? A very distorted view of the world and of reality. And Revelation is written in a form of literature which was very common in the ancient world uh, and it's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, that's, that's from a Greek word, um, apokalypso, which means I reveal. It's a, apocalyptic literature is often used to describe a, a vision of heaven or, or to tell a story of past, present and future events. And it's literature which is very deliberately rich in uh, imagery and in symbols and so you don't, like, you don't read it like you're reading an essay. Uh, it's more like, actually, um, it's more like admiring an abstract painting. You sort of step back from it and you look at the big picture and appreciate the imagery uh, that, is, um, that makes up the picture. And so John saw a vision and re recorded it in apocalyptic style. Now, you and I know that life often gets very complicated and very confusing and things happen which shatter our plans and we don't understand why. And what is it that uh, we need to be reminded of when life is going a bit like that? Well, John reminded the seven churches that God has not taken his hand off the steering wheel, that uh, God is in heaven and from there... God is the king and God rules the world. And so uh, in chapter 4 here we have a, a description of the, John's vision of God in his throne room 
Let me read to you uh, from verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. By the way, the way that that's written in the Greek, uh, it means that this door is now always open. It's been opened, and it is open forever. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, remember that back in chapter 1, that was Jesus, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Remember, In apocalyptic literature, seven represents deity or completeness, and we've seen that this represents the Holy Spirit of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, a sea is often portrayed as being the place of chaos, the place of energy, the place of motion, but this is a crystal clear sea, which represents calmness and peace and stability. What we have here, friends, is a picture of holiness. The the flashes of lightning, the rumblings of thunder. These are the things which remind us of Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. And remember, Moses on Mount Sinai, there was only one person who was allowed to step foot on that land, wasn't there? And that was Moses, because that was holy ground. That was holy ground, because that was where God was meeting with Moses. Notice here that John doesn't actually he doesn't he doesn't tell us what God looked like does he um, because you can't you cannot describe the actual physical presence or appearance of God in terms that uh, anyone is going to understand um, to do so would to be to produce a very inadequate picture of God uh, that's why in the second commandment we're told not to, not to create graven images of God uh, because any image of God, any picture of God any, is going to be inadequate and is therefore going to distort uh, the, 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 the reality of God. And so John uses apocalyptic language. Uh, he says he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. These are magnificent gems. And what it's saying is that God is grand. God is holy. God is seated on his throne from where he rules. Now notice also that surrounding the throne there are 24 other thrones. Did you see that in the passage? 24 other thrones with 24 elders. It seems that this represents uh, the whole of God's people or the leaders of God's people. So the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles... God's people of the Old and the New Covenant. And what are they doing? Well, they're serving God and they're ruling with him. 
Now it's important to uh, step back and uh, to see the big picture here because uh, there is more. In verse uh, 6, in verse 6, um, the second part, it says, In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And in apocalyptic literature, eyes represent uh, wisdom and insight. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before him and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So that's the picture. It's a picture which tells us that the throne of God is surrounded by greatness. Um, the four living creatures. Uh, what are they? Well, there's, there's a lion, and a lion represents um, nobility. The, um, uh, and it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, that um, uh, these days there are, there are nations that use animals to, uh, to represent them, don't they? Uh, the British used the lion. Uh, the Russians, what did the Russians use? They, the Russians use a, can he, a bear. Uh, the Americans, they use uh, an eagle. The Australians, they use um, kangaroo and an emu. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing, is it? Um, <clears throat> but uh, in, an ap in apocalyptic literature, the, the lion equals nobility, the ox equals strength, uh, the man equals wisdom, and uh, the eagle represents speed. And so remember this is picture language, and the question is, well, what is it that they are doing? Well, in these verses, the four living creatures that represent greatness, the, the greatest things that, you know, that, that you, can, you can see in nature, of, of nobility and strength and wisdom and speed, uh, they worship this one who is seated on the throne. And the 24 elders fall prostrate before him as well. In fact, the 24 elders, they remove their crowns and they lay their crowns at the feet of him who sits on the throne. And so what that is saying is that despite their greatness, that he alone is worthy to receive all glory and honour and power. And why? Well, because everything which exists owes its existence to him. He is God. Um, I'm not sure, uh, you can correct me on this one, I need to check it out, but um, I seem to remember that when, a, when Queen Elizabeth was coronated, that there was a part of the ceremony I, I wasn't around at that time by the way 
but um, from what I've seen on videos and so on, part of the ceremony was that there was a point in the ceremony where the, the monarch was stripped of all of her regalia and so she had no throne, uh, no crown and no robes and she was dressed just in white, uh, white linen and they handed her a Bible, um, the word of the living God, uh, in order to symbolise that you are nothing, that there is a king of kings, there is a lord of lords, there is one to whom all people on earth no matter how small, no matter how great they are, must bow the knee to this one, uh, the God who is the one through whom all things have come into existence. And now, uh, so we have this picture of the throne room of God in chapter 4, but now in John's vision, the, the scene, this scene of heavenly grandeur shifts uh, to a scene of, of very high drama um, in chapter 5. Now, in apocalyptic literature, to open a scroll would mean to, to unveil uh, the future destiny of the world. Uh, and here, in chapter 5, verse 1, there is a scroll. But there's only a worthy person could open that scroll. The person who opens this scroll must be someone who is worthy. And this scroll in chapter 5 verse 1 is kept closed with seven seals. And these seven seals become quite important. There's a mighty angel, as we'll see next week. There is a mighty angel who issues a challenge which penetrates through to all of creation. And the challenge is this. Is there anyone... Uh, who is worthy to open the seals, to open the scroll. And there's a long silence, for there is no one who is found, not the great beasts, not the lion, not the, not, 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 not the man, not the, uh, the, the eagle, not the ox. There is no one who is worthy to open the seals. And so John breaks down and cries. He weeps. You see that? He weeps because, uh, A, if there's no one who can break open the seals, then the future will not be revealed. And uh, B, because of it's a, it's a statement about human sin, that there is no one worthy to do this. But then there is a... Uh, a, 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 a uh, there is comfort, and we see it in verse 5. In verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, now, there's Old Testament imagery in this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in the parallel passage, I think it's in 1 or 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that there would be one who would sit on the throne of David and that that 
that throne of David would be the throne of a kingdom which would never end. It would be an everlasting kingdom. Uh, and in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, in the context, the whole context of the Babylonian exile, God promised that a shoot would grow up from the stump of Jesse, uh, that uh, from David's father, and that a Messiah would come to rescue his people and be their king. Well, here he is. Here he is. And we're told that the, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, remember the tribe of Judah was the, along with Benjamin, was the tribe that remained loyal to the Davidic throne after the split of the kingdom. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, what does it say he has? There's been a battle and he has. What does it say? Verse 5. He has triumphed. Thank you. He has triumphed. He has won a victory. And that's um, uh, very important because notice that it is past tense. But it's not talking about a victory that is yet to be won. It is talking about a victory that has already been won. There has already been a battle. The battle is over. And this one, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won. And so that's the scene that is announced, that there is one who is worthy. And so there is this anticipation as to what he will be like. And then we see the entry of the victor. But there is a twist. Because instead of the noble lion or the strong ox or the wise man or the swift eagle, uh, instead of the impressive creatures that are at the top of the food chain that uh, had surrounded the throne with the 24 elders, what appears is a lamb who appears to be mortally wounded. Now, is that a symbol of greatness? No, it's not. It's a symbol of weakness. And yet the lamb stands in the very centre of the throne room and it is he who is the focus of really what is majestic praise. Um, and we see some of the praise that uh, is given to this lamb um, in verse 8, uh, the, the elders and the four living creatures, uh, they fall uh, prostrate at his feet. Uh, in verse 11 and following, there is a, a myriad of angels, of heavenly beings, a countless number of heavenly beings. That It says 10,000 times 10,000. And what are they doing? They're worshipping the Lamb. Countless number of beings, heavenly beings. And in verse 13, what, what's happening here is that the worship and the praise of the Lamb is just, it's just erupting, it's just exploding. It starts with the, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. It goes to this myriad of heavenly beings. And then in verse 13, we're told that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of creation 
is just caught up in this in this praise and worshipping of the Lamb. By the way, who is the only one who rightfully can be worshipped? God. What does this tell us about the Lamb? He is God. And why has the whole of creation erupted into spontaneous worship of this Lamb? Well, verse 9 tells us, tells us why he is worthy because it says here that once the lamb is on the scene they sung a new song in chapter 4 they sung a song about about God the Father you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and so on but as the lamb appears there is a new song a new song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were Slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, Caesar was creating his kingdom. Caesar was creating a kingdom that, uh, from his point of view, consisted of every tribe and language and people and nation all being conquered, all being brought together in order to worship Caesar as God. And the Christians in the seven churches were living in that kind of context. And he had his temples set up where people could go and worship Caesar through the priests there. But this one... This one has created a kingdom of every tribe and language and people and nation because he has purchased men for God. He has paid the price that was required to redeem us from the kingdom of the evil one. He has paid that price through his blood. And we know Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And in doing so, he has purchased us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into this new kingdom, which consists truly of people of every tribe and every language and every nation on the face of the earth. Uh, it's, it's, it's blown out to cover every part of block of land on this celestial ball that we live on. And he's made them to be a kingdom of priests, you see, a, priest's, a priest serves his God in the house where his God lives, supposedly. And we're serving God where he lives, and we've learnt earlier today that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. We serve God wherever we are throughout this whole world and throughout this universe. We are a kingdom of priests in order to serve our God and we will reign on the earth. When Jesus met his cousin, John the Baptist, remember when John was baptising by the Jordan River and uh, John saw Jesus and, and what did he say? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that? Well, the Lamb of God, the ruler of creation, nailed to a cross, bearing our guilt, mortally wounded, so that you and I could be forgiven 
and taken out of the kingdom of the evil one and into this kingdom that we read about here in chapters 4 and 5. Now, the struggling and suffering Christians of the seven churches may well have asked, how long, O Lord, how long? In fact, we'll see next week they did ask that question. And yet, in the midst of this scene of worship, if you have a look at verse 8, uh, if you have in verse 8, the, the elders, the 24 elders, offer something to the lamb, don't they? And what is it that they offer? Well, each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so they've offered prayers, our prayers, to the one who is worthy. Because, friends, all of our godly yearnings and all of our desires to be delivered from sin and all of our hopes for eternity, uh, as these are our prayers, they are listened to by the Lamb and they are answered in the Gospel. Because the Lamb who was slain was slain for us, for you and me. Now, how seriously then do we take the gospel? I mean, the seven churches had their problems. There was persecution in Smyrna. There was false teaching and immorality in Thyatira. The Christians in Laodicea, they'd, gone, they'd lost their zeal. They'd, lo they'd lost their, uh, their passion for Christ. And I, I want to suggest that things haven't changed all that much because... These are things which threaten you and I as well, threaten our church and threaten us as individual Christians. Um, John Lennon asked us to imagine that there was no heaven. And so imagine that. Imagine, imagine that we're at a funeral service here and imagine you know, the chapel is, is full of people. There's a casket there for everyone to see. And the minister says to the congregation, friends, my word of comfort for you today is this. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. There is no meaning except just to live for today. Now, we would be appalled at that, would we not? But yet to live for today as if there is no heaven is the very thing which we're tempted to do. Uh, in the first century, Satan used persecution as one of his key strategies to tempt Christians to give up on God. And, uh, you know, Satan, there is some persecution that we experience, but for us as Australian Christians, 21st century, I don't think Satan relies so much on persecution. His strategy is probably a bit more like seduction. Um, our wealth, our pleasures, um, the peace that we enjoy, these are all wonderful gifts from God. But we can be seduced into thinking that this is heaven, that kind of like this is as good as it gets, that this is what it's all about. And when we have that earthly mindset, that affects a lot of things, our priorities, the way we live and so on. 
And so we can get sucked into the values of our society, into materialism, into the immorality of our world. And the other thing is that we can be tempted to not really want to rock the boat too much, to uh, not disturb that peace uh, that we enjoy, uh, to not stand up for Christ when we really need to be counted. And sometimes you also see it in terms of not being prepared to refute false teaching in the church. Um, And that is a difficulty when we don't have this heavenly perspective. Imagine there's no heaven. Uh, John the Apostle says, no, let me show you reality as it truly is. Let me share with you a glimpse of heaven. There is a heaven. There is a slaughtered lamb. He's won the victory and he alone is worthy. And so what John is saying is, no matter the cost, live your life with that perspective. Live your life understanding the heavenly reality and live your life for Jesus, no matter the cost. Well, next uh, week we uh, will look into some of the uh, great difficulties that the churches were experiencing and how they are explained from the heavenly perspective. But uh, today we've seen that great vision of the throne room of God and the worship and praise that is due to the Lamb. So let's uh, pray and give thanks to God for those realities. Gracious Father, we thank you for this um, uh, glimpse that we have of heaven. Father, we acknowledge that uh, you are holy God and uh, that uh, you are great in every possible sense. Father, we acknowledge that you are the King of kings, the one to whom all must bow their knee. Father, we uh, thank you for the lamb who was slain, the one who alone is worthy to open the scroll. Father, we thank you that by his blood that he has purchased men and women, boys and girls, uh, for you and brought us into this kingdom, this kingdom which extends to all peoples, all nations, all races, all languages. And Father, that uh, together with uh, your people of all ages and across the world and into the future, that uh, we can be praising Jesus and honouring and giving him all of the glory that is due to his name. And we pray that uh, we would do that now as we live our lives faithfully for you, faithful in terms of standing up for truth, uh, for true doctrine, uh, faithful in terms of not uh, absorbing the the, uh, materialistic culture of our day and faithful, Father God, that we would reject the sexual immorality and that we would live holy and godly lives that please you. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.